Coming up on today's show, we speak with Darren Paquette, Edmonton City Councillor and Deputy Mayor for the Papal Visit, will join us and give us his perspective. Rajin Sani, UCP leadership candidate, will join us ahead of the first leadership debate by the UCP party. And we'll speak with Marco Mendocino, the government's public safety minister. We'll also break down the Hockey Canada hearings with Dr. Laura Meisner. So the Pope is in the air, headed for Quebec City after, uh, well, how long would it be? 24, 48, 72 hours in our city, almost exactly. He arrived Sunday morning, leaving today. So, uh, And it's been a busy few days. And front and centre through much of it uh, has been uh, Aaron Paquette. He is uh, Edmonton City Councillor representing Ward Dene. He's also Edmonton's first Métis and Cree Councillor, and he was named Deputy Mayor for the Papal Visit. Uh, Councillor, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Oh, thanks for having me, Shay. I'm a big fan. Um, as Deputy Mayor, you've, uh, you of course, very much involved in this papal visit. I know you were there when the Pope arrived on Sunday, and you were part of a number of the ceremonies and uh, events that took place this week. So just give us your overall impression now that it's behind us. What uh, what was the experience like for you? You know, the experience for me was uh, similar to, I think, what the experience was for a lot of Indigenous people, and that is uh, I'm exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally. Um, it took a lot uh, because for uh, so many people in our community and in our families, uh, this visit has not only been an emotional sense of closure for some, but for others, just a, a re-triggering and re-traumatizing event. And so there's a lot of mixed emotions and a lot of work to do in the aftermath of this historic visit. And I think you make a really good point, like the the response, the reaction, the people, the feelings that people are having uh, now in the days following, they're different. And, and I guess that's the way we should expect it to be, right? It's not the same experience for everybody. Well, that's exactly it. Um, although there are commonalities that we can find, um, you can say the same thing about the experience of residential school and forced adoptions yeah. and, the, and the abuse that went on. You know, we have to remember that this happened to individuals, especially individual children who lived lives in, in, in pain, sorrow, and even terror. And they carry that into their adult lives. And it's an intergenerational pain because, of course, it's been happening for five generations. And so the responses are obviously going to, by nature, have to be individual responses. Um, the the meaning of this, of course, was to uh, fulfill one of the recommendations made in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, uh, that the Pope come to Canada and deliver an apology on Canadian soil as part of the path towards reconciliation. Do you think that was fulfilled? I know a lot of people feel it was. Some say it wasn't. They didn't get what they wanted. Um, do you think that's a check mark beside one of the 94 TRC recommendations? I think it's the best check mark we can uh, expect to see in our lifetime. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of people are saying it was very um, legalistically managed. Uh, it was very careful not to implicate the church, but only implicate individuals, some bad apples, so to speak. But um, at the same time, uh, just even acknowledging this is historic. So I think you've got to mark that as a win. Do you think, you know, we, I mean, like you say, the the residential experiences are different for everybody involved. And we still, you know, one of the things that has struck me as we've talked about this for over a year now is the number of Indigenous people I've spoken to on the air who have said, you know what, all you had to do was listen. We've been telling you about this for a long time. You just didn't listen. None of this that's happening is a mystery to us. We've been telling you about the experience and nobody really paid attention. Now, with the Pope coming here and talking about the evils and the atrocities committed among these people by members of the Roman Catholic Church, um, can we just put to rest 
uh, in some ways? Is it a vindication? Is it a validation? And is it a, we've always been saying this, and now he's admitting it, and does that make a difference? I think so. Um, you know, some people are still obviously going to deny it to their last breath. But I think for uh, the general population, yeah, um, we're saying this happened. Uh, the Pope is saying absolutely. Like, we, they have their own records, by the way, which should be released, but they know what has happened. In fact, they, um, in Canada here, they're still kind of on the hook for, I think, $24 million that uh, has been outstanding since, what, 2000. Uh, eight maybe, and uh, so you know it's been a while. Uh, they know that that it happened, and they've now said that it happened. They've apologized for it, so maybe we can actually see this as the official start of reconciliation in Canada. You say start. I mean, there's got to be actions. It can't just be words. That's what I wanted to ask you, because I've spoken to a number of people this week who have said, yeah, this is great. This is one step on the road to recovery, but it can't be, oh, look, we did this. Now we're... This needs to be the start. What's next? What do you want to see happen next? Well, uh, the city of Edmonton is already committed to fulfilling all the uh, calls to action from the TRC and from the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls uh, uh, inquiry. And so we're there, but there's only so much we can do as a municipality uh, because a lot of these things happen to be provincial and federal um, responsibilities and issues. So what we're calling for is partnership and not just, you know, a, a grudging partnership, but a full-throated support that uh, we're going to do this work. I mean, Shay, none of us, I mean, you and I talking about this, we're not responsible for what happened generations ago. Right. But we do have an incredible opportunity to write the next chapters of Canada in a way that we can be really proud loud and proud about it, and uh, that delivers something better to our children and theirs. I was doing some reading about you uh, prior to this interview, and I can't remember what it was in. might have been a global news story where you were talking a bit about generational trauma. And Now, you didn't attend residential school. You're too young for that. But you talked about how the residual generational trauma that was created within that system affected you personally. Uh, and I thought that, that message is so important. Yeah, you know, my wife and I, we both represent the first generations in our family for over five generations who were not taken from our home as children. And uh, so we had an opportunity to to grow a little bit more uh, healthily. Um, But there are still kids today who are being taken. Uh, Shay, over half the kids in care in Canada are Indigenous, even though the Indigenous community represents such a small percentage. That generational trauma that we're talking about, that is the result of intentional attempts to destroy individuals and communities. And we're seeing the aftermath. It's in every family. It it even affects my own children because they have to hear what happened to their Muslim or to their Kukum. And they know that that's um, a reality that even though we're not doing it now, that it could have happened is still almost like a constant threat. But let me put it this way, Shay. If it can happen uh, to my children or my parents and grandparents, what is to say that if we don't make this commitment that this will never, ever happen again, that it won't happen to someone else's kid in the future, your grandkid, your great-grandkid, until every child is safe, Shay, no child is safe. And that's what we should focus on. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think getting that message is, is so important. How... You know, try and project into the future when you look back at your experience this week, not only as uh, a member of the Indigenous community, but as a member of City Council and being part of, you know, it's an historic moment for the City of Edmonton. Where does this fit in? Yeah, um, well, let's put it this way. When we see the impacts of residential school and forced adoptions, we see them 
uh, on our city streets. We see people with broken lives uh, who are suffering from mental uh, health issues, emotional health, uh, from addictions, from houselessness. These are the direct results of this intention to destroy communities and destroy lives. We see it on our streets every day. That is where the work has to begin. We actually have to put action behind our words. We need the province and the federal government to step up to help municipalities across Canada because it's not just Edmonton experiencing this. Mm -hmm. And these are real lives. I mean, and some people say, oh, those people don't want help or, you know, whatever. These are people who received quote unquote help as children and it wrecked them. So is it any wonder that they are a little bit skeptical about what is being offered now? I mean, we have to put work and action behind our words. Until we see each other, Shay, and everyone else as human, uh, we're really not going to get very far. Great message. Uh, Councillor, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Oh, I appreciate you, Shay, and everything you do. Thanks. Thank you, sir. That is Councillor Aaron Paquette, uh, Edmonton City Councillor Ward Dene, uh, Edmonton's first Métis, and Cree Councillor, uh, Deputy Mayor, uh, during the papal visit, and uh, he was uh, part of the welcoming committee, and he's been at all the events. And um, as I say, those events have now wrapped up, at least in our province. But the papal visit does continue. Um, the Pope is now uh, headed for Quebec City. There'll be a brief ceremony today at the Plains of Abraham. He'll hold Mass tomorrow, um, and then he's off to Iqaluit for a brief stop on Friday on his way back to the Vatican. So it's been a busy week. Um, you might have seen the footage yesterday. He attended the annual pilgrimage at Lac St. Anne, the healing waters of Lac St. Anne. The Pope was there um, and uh, was supposed to go in the in the Pope mobile, from what I understand, down the long path to the lake, but instead um, took the wheelchair and uh, was accompanied by a number of uh, members of the Indigenous communities from around the area. So, I mean, it's been busy. There's been a lot going on. I don't think, you know, sitting back at this point in time and saying, okay, it's over and done, here's what it means, is easy, or it's something we need to try and do. Uh, Because, you know, everyone we've spoken to this week has made it clear the reaction, the response, the feeling, the emotion, all of that is different. It's individual, which makes perfect sense. We're dealing with individuals, and they're all going to feel differently about it. So I don't know if we'll be able to actually say this is what was accomplished or wasn't accomplished by this papal visit today, tomorrow, a year from now. It's going to be something that's sort of, it's historic. And as we've heard from a lot of people, it's means different things for different people, but it is a step, right? It's a step on the road to reconciliation. Tonight, uh, the UCP leadership debate is taking place. First one will happen in Medicine Hat, starts at 5 o'clock. You can watch it live on the UCP website if you are so inclined. Uh, Seven finalized candidates will be taking part. One of them, Rajan Sani, and uh, she is the final interview. We've managed to speak to all of them. Um, Ms. Sani is the last one, and we're delighted she can join us this morning. Uh, Ms. Sani, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Hi, good morning. How are you? Excellent. Uh, How are you feeling on debate day? I'm feeling pretty good, actually. We are just uh, getting ready to go on the road, head to Medicine Hat, and and I'm feeling great. When you take a look at the first debate, um, how important is it? Uh, How how much emphasis is your team putting on a good performance tonight? 
Well, you know, I always try to put my best foot forward in anything that I do, and this is an important opportunity to get key messages across. So we did we did spend some time preparing for it, but but I know what my messages are, and uh, as we move forward, we're going to continue to be very conscientious about reaching out to Albertans and, and sharing that information. I've asked all the candidates uh, much the same questions, um, including um, most see this as more than just selecting a leader. It's really trying to define the direction of the party going forward after this leadership campaign. And as we know, it's divided. There's a lot of different directions that people want to see it go. And so, if you are elected leader, what's your vision? Where does the UCP go with you in charge? Well, that's really well said that this election is consequential and it will determine the direction that the province will go in. And that is one of the key reasons that I'm running. Unity is very important. And I will say at this point that we are more united as a caucus than I think what uh, what the general public believes. I mean, certainly things have changed now that Premier Kenny has decided to step away. That in itself has been a unifying factor. But my vision as we go forward is simply that word forward. There's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. I am a center-right moderate candidate, if I had to describe myself in those terms. And we have a number of issues related to health, particularly mental health. I don't hear a lot of people talking about that component. And, uh, of course, we've heard a lot of noise around education. And we are very, very well poised right now in our economy, particularly with all of the geopolitical um, tensions in, in Europe, to really focus on energy and energy transition and LNG and hydrogen. Like, like there's so many things that we can do, so many opportunities that we can avail ourselves of, and it's all predicated on unity, and it's predicated on a leader who really has a vision of moving forward. But as I mentioned, we have things that we do need to fix, and uh, I am quite focused on the health care issue. Okay. Um, I think a lot of those issues you mentioned, uh, they do resonate with voters. They always do. They're the ones that we talk about so many times. You know, economy, health care, education, they're always big when it comes to a campaign. I think a lot of that got derailed uh, within the UCP party, and um, there's some debate over why. Uh, there is Jason Kenney's camp that says it was a division that erupted over COVID policy, things like that. They couldn't abide that. But there's another category that says, no, it wasn't necessarily the policy. It was the leadership style. Grassroots weren't listened to. MLAs weren't consulted. It was top down. What's your take? What, what went wrong and how do you make sure the same mistake isn't repeated? Is it policy? Is it leadership? Well, I think I will start off by saying that the government did do a lot of things right. There were tremendous supports that were offered during COVID to social service agencies, to small businesses, and to families as well. So I don't want to lose sight of the fact that a lot of good work was done. And certainly there wasn't no any kind of a blueprint as to how to deal with COVID, and uh, the challenges were great. However, when it comes to overall government, there was an issue with uh, engagement and respect, even within within the caucus itself. There's a lot of smart people in that caucus, and they represent different geographical areas of the province, and their voices should resonate, and they matter, and they're representing their constituents. And I think there was a failure to have that engagement one-on-one with, with every single caucus member. And, uh, and I think every contestant would agree that this government wasn't listening 
many times. It wasn't listening to healthcare workers. It wasn't listening to teachers. It wasn't listening to uh, municipalities and elected officials across the province. And uh, and that is what um, has led us to the situation that we're in right now. We have an opportunity to turn the page by being really engaging and collaborative with all of these sectors, these demographics that I just mentioned, because, uh, you know, as I've been traveling through the province, this is a key message that comes back over and over again. What about our voice? What about what we think? Where does that fit into the equation? So I think policies um, generally, I mean, there were obviously some major issues in healthcare, but it was it was leadership style and it was um, the nature of the pressure that we were all in during COVID. Um, and as you say, listening to all the different voices, and there are many, and, and I mean, that's part of the job. How do you manage? Because some of them, let's be honest here, within your party, some of them are the exact opposite. They are completely contradictory positions within the same party. You, if you're elected leader, have to come up with a way to make sure that everybody feels that they're heard, their voices have been, you know, are at the table, but ultimately you need to make a decision as to which way it goes. How do you do that without alienating certain sections of um, your party, which obviously happened with Premier Jason Kenney. How can you start? I mean, I understand you want to hear the voices, but ultimately you've got to make the call. Yes, and everything in life is about relationships, whether you're in a business relationship or a personal relationship or, or you're in a volunteer organization. And relationships require cultivation. And, you know, my launch, I had Angela Pitt, who was there with me, and we disagree on more things that we agree on, actually, but we have a very respectful relationship because I cultivated that, and she did as well. And we can share our diverse opinions. And it's not just Angela with many members in caucus. People just want to be heard. They want to have the opportunity to air their grievances or bring their ideas forward and have that conversation. And once that conversation happens, you can come to a place of consensus. I've had this experience in the business world. My background is business development and negotiations. And it's all about, sometimes it is a negotiation. It's about providing concessions and it's about um, that give and take aspect of it. And I also want to to let you know that, you know, during this whole time of um, when, when Premier Kenny had decided that he was going to step away, I had about 18 to 20 MLAs approach me and ask me to take on the interim leadership role. And I was deeply humbled that um, there was that much respect for me. And, it, and I think it, you know, goes back to the fact that I've always been a consensus builder. And of course, at that time, I thought, you know what, I think the real job is so much more important because I do believe that Albertans deserve leadership that is visionary and forward thinking and is going to build rather than break apart. Um, Last one. Uh, Interesting time as uh, the leadership race is so close to an election. How How conscious do you have to be of the fact that what happens within this leadership campaign um, will be a factor in what happens with uh, a general election that takes place about six months after the fact. There's no question that some of the talking points, some of the issues that have dominated this campaign thus far are ones that are going to be seen as extreme and extremely unpalatable to uh, a, a section of the population, both within your party and without. How conscious are you to try and minimize the potential damage that could be done to the UCP in the upcoming election campaign by what's done during this leadership campaign. 
I'm very conscious of it and I'm very concerned about it. I think any conversations around sovereignty are very destructive. We are in a position where we have maintained positive investor confidence and we are attracting more investment in our province and our economy is doing relatively well, even in the face of affordability. But these kinds of conversations are destructive and they are disunifying factors as well. Because like you said, we have to think about 2023 and any win in 2023 is predicated on unity. So these kinds of conversations are a concern to me. And of course, I mean, the recent conversations made by a fellow leadership candidate around cancer were very uh, destructive and very hurtful to almost every single Albertan who has been touched by cancer. So again, I'm very conscious of these elements within the race. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us who occupy that center-right moderate space, which is, I think, where most Albertans are, to call that out, to call it out and, and be loud and vocal about it and, uh, and also be cognizant at the end of the day that we do have to be unified because, again, 2023 demands that. So some of these things that are happening right now during the race that are divisive and uh, represent um, views that are not the views of the majority of, uh, of Albertans, I will speak to them, most definitely. Um, Ms. Sani, I, I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. Okay, we have, um, joining us now, we have Marco Mendocino, who is the Public Safety Minister, Federal Government of Canada, MP for Ellington Lawrence. Um, Minister Mendocino, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me, Shay. Now, you're currently in Alberta taking part uh, in the papal visit, and uh, you were in attendance for the apology at Muscochise yesterday. Um, just your overall impressions of what we've seen in Alberta over the past couple of days. Well, uh, just to, to clarify, I was not at the official apology, but I was at the uh, mass at uh, Commonwealth. Right. And, um, you, know, uh, you know, my reflection is that this was a long overdue apology that uh, was directly in response to the call to action as uh, authored by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but that um, the Pope did express, I think, a message of uh, unity, peace, and, and reconciliation, and explicitly uh, communicated uh, his apology to Indigenous peoples. I think, um, you know, it will be up to uh, residential school survivors and Indigenous peoples uh, to ultimately uh, judge for themselves um, how how this has been received. What's more important, though, is that all Canadians, I think, um, use this important moment, this sober uh, moment, to continue to advance uh, on the path to reconciliation, and that's uh, part of the reason why I'm in Alberta, which is to meet with Indigenous leaders when it comes to matters of public safety, uh, which I know we're going to get into. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of one of those issues, and I know this was something that came up just last week in our province with um, uh, the provincial government and members of the Siksika Nation um, calling on the federal government and calling on you to remove what they say are roadblocks. They want to bring back First Nations policing on the Siksika First Nation, and they say they're ready to go. The province is on board. It's the federal government standing in the way. What's your response well, to, to that? Well, to be clear, yeah, to be clear, there are no uh, roadblocks. That's not the word that I would use to characterize this. On the contrary, I think there's a lot of good faith on the part of the uh, federal government to sit down with uh, First Nations and Indigenous communities right across the country, which is exactly what I've been doing on my Western tour, uh, meeting with communities in Saskatchewan and now in Alberta. I've just uh, concluded, uh, I think, a very uh, constructive meeting with um, uh, Chief uh, Crowfoot here in the Siska, uh, Siska, uh, Sis- 
systems. Uh, and uh, it is important that we uh, make progress and meet communities where they're at when it comes to enhancing capacity um, um, uh, so that we can provide additional training, additional uh, enforcement of uh, Indigenous laws, and uh, for those communities that are ready uh, to uh, to create um, Indigenous-led police services, which is exactly uh, what uh, uh, Chief Crowfoot and I and others of his council uh, spoke with uh, here in uh, Nsitska. So, I mean, there's a memorandum of, of understanding with the province. They're on board. They're ready to go. You had the meeting. What stage are you at in terms of saying, okay, we're going to move towards this? Is this something that you favor, that you want to make happen? Where, where are you on the process? Well, I, I think from where I sit, we want to accelerate progress. And by that, I mean, um, you know, seeing exactly what the, uh, the details are of the proposal that has been put forward by SICSCA and uh, working with them as well as with uh, the province of, of Alberta uh, to, to implement. And I think that, that, that on a very positive note, uh, we've earmarked over $860 million uh, to both stabilize but equally to enhance Indigenous-led police services. Um, that's not the only thing that we're doing. Um, we're also co-drafting legislation that ensures that Indigenous policing is uh, deemed an essential service. Um, you know, you and I, uh, we live, uh, you know, in, in urban centres uh, where um, we depend on police services. I think everybody would agree that they're an essential service. The same should be true uh, for on reserve for all Indigenous people. So uh, with these two important pillars, um, we have a strategy that uh, is meant to advance reform of Indigenous policing. Uh, so that they can be empowered uh, to provide uh, protection uh, and security uh, for their own people. And that was something that, uh, again, uh, the chief communicated to me, uh, I think, in a very impassioned way. Uh, kudos uh, to him and to the community. I think they, they put a lot of work into, into putting forward, a, a, I think, a, a detailed proposal. Uh, we want to make sure that we digest it, uh, that we understand it, and that we move forward uh, with all orders of government, uh, including SISCA, so that we can make uh, this uh, proposal uh, a reality. I think we also recognize uh, that, that, that the creation of, of a police service, an Indigenous-led police service, or any police service for that matter, does not happen overnight. Um, we do have to make sure that, uh, that we put the work in, uh, but there is a, a real commitment there to do that work, and, and that's one of the reasons why uh, I came uh, to the community today. A couple of other questions I had for you, and, and I need your help. I'm not an anti-mandate guy. I'm not an anti-public health thing. I'm, I'm all on board when they make sense. Help me make sense of what's going on with COVID restrictions around travelers. Uh, first of all, the random testing. Why on earth are we bringing that back? Why is that? So- we got rid of it. Why is it back? Well, first, let's just remember the first principle, uh, and that is that vaccinations save lives. And if uh, you live in Canada, um, and you accept that, and I think uh, most reasonable and fair-minded people do. Uh, And, and, uh, you know, kudos to Canadians who have taken up, um, you know, the work and have made the sacrifices. And, you know, thanks thanks to us, and in comparison to some other, um, you know, advanced democracies, I think Canada has fared well. And, And it's important that, you know, we continue to follow the science on that. So let's start from that premise. Sure. I think all of the other measures that we put in place, particularly at the border, have been with the view to mitigating the risks around transmission and also uh, keeping our eyes wide open for potential variants. Why is that important? Because as we learn about variants uh, and our health uh, professionals and, um, you know, epidemiological experts can fine tune uh, vaccines to, to better protect us. And one of the things, uh, one of the very, I think, 
uh, you know, sober realities of this pandemic is that this particular virus has been very adept at, 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 at varying and, and, and staying and kicking around despite um, vaccination. So that's, that's the point of having t- a testing regime, whether it occurs in the border or whether it occurs in the community. I will say that, that the restrictions have eased. Uh, at the border, and we've we've taken a very measured approach uh, in recalibrating our protocols. And the proof of that progress is that uh, travel is coming back. Now, does it look exactly the way that it did uh, pre-COVID? Uh, no, it does not. Do we want to eventually get to that point? Yes, we do. And we will continue to work with uh, our uh, colleagues in the health department to make sure that we protect the health and safety of Canadians. That has to be the paramount objective of any government, and and that is something that we will continue to adhere to. But but the, the testing, I mean, how does it protect me? What does it do? I mean, give me one example of, okay, you managed to identify somebody in this random testing in four locations across the country, nowhere else. Um, how on earth does this protect me? And Canada isn't developing new vaccines based on a variant you detect with this random test. How does it make a difference? Well, let me just clarify uh, two things. Uh, one, uh, it, if you can test and you can identify a new variant uh, and a variant that, that spreads quickly, then you can localize where those tests came from. And you can, you know, take uh, again in conjunction and not federally. I just want to clarify for your listeners that a lot of these protections are, 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 are going to be um, rolled out by provincial governments and local governments. Not that um, random testing one. That's you. Well, no, I mean, that's well, that's not entirely true. There are there are some tests that are. Uh, perform, for example, around wastewater. It's not exactly the same method of testing, but there are there are tests that are done. That's a completely uh, passive by, test. This is saying when you arrive back in the country, go find a third party testing. to test you. I'm sorry. That that the wastewater is a completely passive test. There's no onus on the traveler whatsoever. The other one, you need to go and find a third party to go and test you when you get home. It's completely. I mean, they're completely different. I mean, they're not even in the same universe. Well, just to be clear, you asked, what's the rationale for testing? The rationale for testing is to identify potential new variants and to localize where there might be outbreaks. And that then, in turn, informs you know, policy decisions which are made not only by the federal government, by the provincial and local authority, health authorities as well. So that's the rationale for testing. The other thing I would say is, like, look, um, we are at a different stage uh, in the pandemic, but we do have to be very eyes wide open about what the risks are. And I think that's the like that is the most important objective here that we continue to follow the evidence and the science while at the same time easing restrictions which we have done uh, so that we can get trade and travel going again and the fact is that we have seen uh, trade and travel come back that we are starting to see people uh, go back and forth over the border and that is good uh, for economy and we need to continue uh, to do that but also to, to remember that 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 there are still decisions that that have to be informed by the best available uh, health and science, and that's precisely what we will continue to do. Um, and as you said, travel is coming back. We're all happy to see that it hasn't gone smoothly. And there are some people, as you know, some travel organizations, some airlines, some airport security that say part of the reason that's causing some of the problem, not all of it by any means, but some of it is this Arrive Can app. Um, which was brought in as an emergency measure. Now we've been told it's going to remain, and it's also going to be expanded. Give us the rationale for that. Well, uh, you know, again, I and I acknowledge that that that, that there's uh, always going to be some frustration uh, when it comes to wanting to see things get right back to the way they were pre-COVID. And I know that um, colleagues who are working in transportation and health, and not only in government, by the way, but like in the airline sector, um, you know, where 
we see that uh, that there are challenges making sure that there's uh, appropriate staffing levels uh, coming out of the pandemic and everybody wants to get back to what travel looked like uh, you know in 2019 and the summer is always a point in time when you know people want to get together they want to go on vacation you know whether you're talking about across the border or elsewhere mm-hmm. so everybody is motivated uh, trust me sufficiently uh, to get those wheels turning again as quickly as possible um, Arrive Can does collect important information uh, that that helps to ensure that the travel is safe and secure for Canada. So what does that mean? That means asking basically two fundamental questions. Are you vaccinated to the standard that has been approved by Health Canada? One. And two, um, you know, are there are, are, are you uh, symptom free so that uh, we can be sure that there are no additional steps that need to be taken? Um, there are some additional questions that are on that app that are asked. For example, you know, do you want to fill out your customs card uh, electronically. There's a link on the app to do that, uh, which could lead to a, a smoother, more efficient um, experience for travelers in the long run. I've also said that um, we're going to work, again, very closely with um, our colleagues in health who uh, do set out the requirements for travel uh, in a pandemic context at the border to streamline this as much as possible so that we can leverage technology, so that we can make the experience, again, as efficient as possible for the traveler. We're all motivated to get there you know it's, uh, it's been a, a long, long wait for people mm-hmm. to get back to travel, but we are starting to see those levels of travel come back, too. And one of the concerns people have with the Arrive Can app, and, I, and of course you know this, and they, they've come to the surface this week, is when you're collecting more data, you're increasing the amount of data that you're collecting. People are very, and rightly so, concerned about where that data might end up and uh, how the security around this app is, is governed. What can you tell them to sort of assuage some of those fears? Yeah, it's a fair question, which is why, you know, government uh, departments have been consulting with the privacy commissioner to make sure that data is collected in a way that is consistent with uh, the right to privacy and that it isn't uh, retained beyond what is necessary. Um, you know, at the same time, as I pointed out, uh, the, the, the most important questions that are posed on Arrive Can are in relationship to um, checking to make sure that people are vaccinated to the standard that is required by Health Canada and making sure that people are symptom-free. Those are logical common sense questions, uh, which, um, you know, you would expect, I think, any any country to ask, given the global pandemic. And obviously, we will continue to follow the, the health and science when it comes to that. And look, do we want to ease in the, in the long run? Of course we do, but we have to do it in a way that is measured and responsible. And, and I think that the fact that, you know, travel volumes are starting to increase, certainly from the, the, the low point of the pandemic, where we saw travel down 90%, is a reflection of the fact that people are starting to move again. Um, we just want to make sure that they're healthy and safe as they do so. Um, Minister, I, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining us. Right now, as you and I are talking, um, members of Hockey Canada, um, the Ontario Hockey League Commissioner, Western Hockey League Commissioner, Quebec Major Junior Hockey League Commissioner, all of these highly placed junior executives, as well as the Hockey Canada executives, are on Parliament Hill being grilled by MPs over the state of hockey. It's all centered, of course, around the 2018 incident, but now there's the 2003 incident. I mean, the list goes on, and we're learning more as we go through here. Uh, we found out this morning that Hockey Canada has paid out $7.6 million dollars uh, nine different settlements related to sexual assault and sexual sexual abuse claims dating back to 1989. Now, 
Uh, almost 7 million of that was all related to Graham James. Okay, so the vast, vast, vast majority of it is dealing with that incident. Um, they also, one of the things we've talked about earlier today, Sheldon Kennedy coming out and saying, you know what, the whole organization needs to be blown up and torn down. And we, You cannot have the same people that have been on board with Hockey Canada the entire time all this has happened and ask them to change things and to make things better. To that end, Hockey Canada uh, CEO Scott Smith, brand new CEO, um, was asked about that this morning. Here's his quote. You've asked for transparency. You've asked for accountability. You've asked for Hockey Canada to change. I'm here to lead that change. I will not walk away from the demands you have rightly put before us. We will ask an independent third-party expert panel to conduct a full governance review of Hockey Canada to ensure we have the right people and oversight in place to give Canadians confidence in us. Canada's lost confidence in you. I think that's pretty clear. All of your money has been pulled. People are angry from coast to coast. All right, you're going to do your third-party investigation. So I, it looks like what a lot of people were hoping for, um, an overhaul, is not going to come as quickly and as easily as uh, a lot of people thought that it might. We're going to speak now with Dr. Laura Meisner, who is Director and Professor at the School of Kinesiology, Faculty of Health Sciences at Western University. Um, Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. No problem. Happy to be here. You know, in reading about your background, um, I was struck by the similarities. Um, You were an elite gymnast, saw all kinds of problems within the sport of gymnastics, decided to tackle it through academia, did research, studied this, presented your findings to Sport Canada, and what happened? Right. Well, um, nothing, essentially. I I think it really fell on, um, you know, deaf ears, and a lot lot of change was made. Um, I think since that time, we've seen a lot of policy changes in many organizations, but it's clear that, you know, implementation of safe sport policies is not enough to protect players and athletes from the kinds of harms that we've been hearing about. So we know what happened with uh, Gymnastics Canada last week. We know what's happening with Hockey Canada right now. Now Sport Canada in general has been pulled into this because they've admitted now they knew about the 2018 incident years ago and decided not to do anything or tell anybody. What is it with sports governance in this country that it's such a disaster, doctor? Right. Well, I think it's it's a broader issue. It's not just sport governance. It's the culture of sport in and of itself. It's it's a culture that promotes and perpetuates silencing when there is these types of behaviors going on. Um, we in sport feel that somehow we're able to deal with the issues of, on our own in-house, and we don't invite others in to investigate, to you know, change the procedures, change the rules, and to have fair punishments happen. Um, And that's the problem that's gone on for a really long time is that sport is very insular and isolating from other mechanisms that would support the change that's needed. And so this culture is pervasive throughout many, many sports. And, you know, you can speak to that. Obviously, as, as, as we said, you did the work, you did the research, you have the lived experience, plus you have the academic research into it, and you presented that, and it was completely ignored. It, I mean, are they just not interested in even listening? Is not something that doesn't hit their radar until it gets to the point where we're seeing it blow up like it is now? Well, I think what's been happening is that, um, you know, when we have people presenting 
particular cases where there is research and there's evidence to support it. Um, the, the way that they, these organizations address this is often through policy mechanisms. So we'll create another safe sport policy. Or if there's a particular incident with a coach, we deal with that individual on an individual level or an individual club yeah. level. And so look at these situations as being isolated. And it means that the organizations are really willing to take a hard look at their own internal mechanisms and the sport more broadly, how it continues to perpetuate the ideas that it's acceptable to have these harms and abuse happening. And as long as we just deal with the individual where it might have happened, it's not happening in other places. Well, that's wrong. And we've known that. And we've said that for many, many years. And I'm not the only one. Researchers, you know, throughout the country and around the world have talked about this for a long time. But sport doesn't really want to, to look at itself that way because it really means a massive change in how we have governed sport and the culture that is so pervasive in sport. And I think, you know, what we're seeing is really administrators, coaches, those in positions of power, not wanting or willing to give up that position of power. And that's what it's going to take. And that's a big shift for most of them. So how does that happen? We had Sheldon Kennedy coming out yesterday, who I have so much respect for in this field. He's got the lived experience and he's worked so hard to try and bring about change, saying, you know what, you can't just go back and ask the people that are already in the room to make the change. It's not going to happen. It seems like you're saying the same sort of thing. We need a complete overhaul and breakdown. How does that happen and what do we need to look for when it comes to the people in charge of this, the people in governance? Sheldon Kennedy says, has there ever been a woman that headed up Hockey Canada? I mean, things like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a good example. It's oftentimes we promote from within in sport. We bring in players who have been acculturated within the system, coaches who have been acculturated within the system, move them into administrative roles, and so they continue to perpetuate the same ideologies. Um, and that's where we're not seeing change. I mean, Hockey Canada is a prime example. For a long time, they didn't even want to deal with women's hockey, let alone para-ice hockey, because what mattered to that organization was, the, was men's hockey and men's hockey only. And that is a sign of an unwillingness to change, an unwillingness to have those from outside the sport, outside the culture, come in and make that change. And we're seeing that even with the announcements today, you know, the CEO saying, we, I'm, I'm committed to this, I'm going to make the change from within. And that in and of itself is problematic because you cannot make the change from within because all it does is it continues to promote the same individuals who've been accultured through the same pathways, and then we end up in the same situation in a few years from now. So we need new thinking, new people from outside the system to really come in and make that change. We need to be listening to the researchers who have been doing this kind of research for a long time and saying this change needs to happen. It means the structures, the system, the ways of governance actually need to be different. They need to be accountability, third-party, outside external accountability mechanisms built in throughout the system and not just when something happens. And all of those types of changes are massive shifts in power that I don't see that people are really willing to give up yet. So how does that happen? You're right. It is a big change. It is a big shift. And I think, you know, we're sort of at an inflection point, at least with Hockey Canada. And I think a lot of it, and as as crass as it is, Doc, when the money disappears, when the sponsors say we're out, when the government pulls the funding, okay, now it's time for a reckoning. Um, Do you think this could be enough with Gymnastics Canada, with Hockey Canada, and maybe even Sport Canada? But the money's gone now, right? 
Right. I mean, I think the money is the big piece. Money and the sponsors, when they walk away and say, we don't want to be a part of this, we don't want our name associated with it, that has a huge impact on those organizations. And they're really at a point where they can't do anything but change. But I think more broadly than that is we're actually seeing an outcry from the public, from people who have been mm-hmm. committed supporters of sports like hockey forever as it being such ingrained in Canadian culture, stepping back and saying, I don't want my kid to participate in that. I'm not going to sign up my son or my daughter into these sports because I don't believe the system is right. And that's the kind of pressure that really makes change. Because when people step away from it and don't want to participate in it and don't want to be involved in it, then the whole fundamental structure of the sport falls down. And I think we're starting to see that. And I, that's the part that really hurts me because, you know, my whole agenda is yeah. to try and get people involved in sport in safe ways because we know sport can be so good to be healthy it can promote all kinds of wonderful things but only if it's structured safely and so it's when we see you know families walking away and saying we're not going to be involved in this that i think we're going to start to see real change i share that disappointment uh, like i've been involved in minor hockey for a long time and i know that there's people out there that this is going to convince that hockey's bad mm-hmm. for their kids and they don't want to do yeah. it but maybe maybe doc can we be optimistic that this is the one thing that will finally because we've talked about this for so long you've done so much work personally around this right this actually will lead to meaningful change and we'll all be better off for it yeah i mean i guess i'm I'm optimistic that maybe we could move towards a system that is about participation i mean the biggest problem within the context of this is that our focus is on a pathway to be a high performance athlete a pathway to the nhl a pathway to the olympic games instead of recognizing that in fact our sports system should be built on broad-based participation so that everybody can be involved and be active and if we could make that fundamental shift then we actually could see the change. But I think I'm not optimistic until we see a shift away from that narrative around everything is towards high performance and those pathways to high performance because that then pushes these other agendas of controlling behavior, of the political aspects of it. Until we can really start to value broad-based participation in sport, end of story, then we will see the shift. And that's going to take a bigger shift than just simply saying, we'll change the structure. That's a lot more about the culture that Canadians, we have to value that. And that's a shift even on our own mindsets, because that's not currently how we fund sport. It's not how we think about sport. It's not how we value what sport is about in many respects. So um, that's going to take a bigger mindset shift on our part as well. Fantastic points. Uh, Dr. Meisner, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, You're welcome. Happy to be here to talk about this. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.